Welcome to Hunting Land. If you'd like to stay up to date on hunting tactics, land management, land values, and land market dynamics, this is the podcast for you. I'm Joe Baya here with my co-host, Clint Flowers. Clint, how's it been going this week, man? I sure am enjoying this cold front we got moving in. Yeah, I'm uh, upset I've got to work today instead of being able to be out in the woods. I know it. I know it. We got uh, to gotta go sell some more land so we can be independently wealthy and just go hunt whenever we want to go hunt. Now's when you need to be in the woods, but... Yeah, we got a good show today, man. You know, first off, we're going to be talking with Jason Burbage and getting an update on on land values, looking at different parts of the country and seeing what the trend is uh, going into the end of the year. And then a little bit later in the show, we're going to be talking with Michael Hunter and really going into some ins and outs of dealing with uh, dealing with deer meat, dealing with other game. You know, a lot of people are taking animals this time of year and you've got to know how to process them efficiently and process them in a way that keeps everybody happy at the dinner table. We're going to be talking about some of the myths and misconceptions and, and gamey taste and deer meat and other game. But before we get there, let's hear from this week's show sponsor. And this week is brought to you by SunSouth. If you're even thinking about a new tractor or outdoor equipment, don't miss the year-end sales event at SunSouth. You can save thousands on a new John Deere with 0% financing and payments under $250 a month on select models like the John Deere 1025R compact utility tractor and loader with 0% financing and low monthly payment. Or for larger jobs, drive off in a John Deere 3025E with a loader from SunSouth for only $234 a month. And again, 0% financing. John Deere Gators are on sale, including the 590M, outdoor equipment, parts, service, accessories. SunSouth has you covered. It's all on sale now during the year-end sales event. Own the best for less. Visit SunSouth for quality John Deere equipment you've been dreaming of or visit sunsouth.com. SunSouth, for those that do, offers expired December 31st, 2020. Some restrictions apply. All right, Clint, let's get into the What's My Land Worth segment. And joining us again this week, we've got Jason Burbage, the president of National Land Realty. And Jason, you guys did a great job on the new launch of the website. Before we get into What's My Land Worth, tell me a little bit about the uh, the new website. Hey, Joe, I appreciate that. Yeah, it was a it was a major, major task that we undertook, basically rebuilding the nationalland.com website. It was almost a two-year process, and we're, we're super excited about it. The essential concept behind it, besides obviously promoting all of our clients' properties that we have for sale uh, and ensuring that, that people who are looking for land that match the search criteria, that their search criteria matches our clients' properties that they know they're available was also for nationalland.com to really become a resource for those folks who are looking to learn more about uh, what their property is worth, uh, look to learn more about good information about how to manage their properties or anything along those lines when it comes to what it takes to be a property owner or if you're considering buying a property or selling a property for that matter. So we've put a lot into to bringing as much credible information as possible to folks that they don't have to pay for. Um, that's a big thing for us. We didn't want to have to you know, charge people for this. We just want people to be able to have access to information and then be able to take the basic information and we're able to provide them and then go and contact a land professional to get more specifics, to drill down to either areas that they're looking to buy in or learn more about what their property might be worth, what it takes to potentially sell a property and that sort of thing. So, so it's been a big undertaking. Our tech team has just done a fantastic job. The, the, the amount of work they did, the quality of work they did, is just I'm extremely proud of. And, and hopefully the public will feel the same way. Well, Jason, one of the biggest things with the new website is being able to dig into some of the land values uh, around the country and look at the trends what's been happening with land value. So today, what, uh, what states are we going to take a look at and, uh, and get an idea of what's been going on? We're, uh, we're going to talk about five states today. Really, these are, these are Ohio Valley, Virginia area, Pennsylvania, so it's Kentucky, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Virginia, and West Virginia. Again, the parameters that we're looking at for this segment are 50 plus acres in size going back to 2018 and identifying what the median price per acre 
for these properties that have sold, what that median price per acre is, what the medium acreage size is uh, in these states. And you know, with that disclaimer in that we're looking at the whole state. So you're gonna have some state parts of the state where values are different. Uh, you can see extreme shifts in value across the country ranging from a few hundred dollars per acre to tens of thousands of dollars per acre. But what we're trying to do here is just give people a very basic introduction to what your state's doing overall. And then again, as you want to learn more, be able to, to introduce you to a, to a land professional who can help you answer those questions for you. When we talk about a lag in data, the data we're going to be looking at for 2020, how far along is this data? So when is this pulling from? Yeah, good question. So for 2020, we've got uh, currently essentially two quarters worth of data that we're looking at right now. And we're almost through the year. So to put it in perspective, I've got out of out of these five states in 2020, a total of 542 records. When the full data comes in, we I should have everything in by the first quarter of next year. We'll have thousands of records to be able to pull from. So that's one reason why we go back multiple years because current year is good, but it really it doesn't really paint you the full picture of what's going on because so much can happen in a year. If you look at the first quarter of 2020 and compare it to the last quarter of 2020, I can tell you nationwide, you're going to see a big difference in hesitation that was happening when the pandemic came out, et cetera, to where we're at right now, which is continue to be a very robust market nationwide. There's just a ton of interest in acreage, whether that's somebody who's looking to get out of the, the urban, cramming it with other people and have five acres around them to folks that are still looking for hundreds or thousands of acres. And then naturally also from our commercial side, developers who are looking to develop more land to be able to accommodate the residential housing demand that's out there for the suburban areas that are still expanding. Well, you know, a lot of times it just depends on who's looking, but a lot of times folks are looking to just get as much acreage as they can. So to, again, today we're talking Kentucky, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Virginia, West Virginia. Out of those states, which one is offering the lowest median price per acre, uh, effectively giving someone as much acreage as they can get for their dollar. Absolutely. That's West Virginia. West Virginia's median price per acre. And it's, it's been pretty constant for the most part this year. This year, I, I need to see the rest of the data before, we can, before I can get a, a good feel for where it's at. But for perspective, 2018, the median price per acre was just under $1,500 an acre. Uh, it dropped in 2019 to about $1,200 per acre a little over $1,100 per acre actually. And it's under $1,000 an acre for 2020. But again, with that disclaimer, I don't have a full set of data to pull that from. And, and that's a medium acreage size of 82 to, to 90 acres. That's a pretty significant price per acre drop. Is there anything to attribute that to? I mean, is our West Virginia land values tied strongly to say the timber market or something like that? Well, one thing you got to think about when we think about West Virginia is coal. That's an industry that there's a lot going on in. West Virginia in, in general, it's a beautiful state. Uh, there's a lot of rough country there. So traditionally you're seeing more larger acreage parcels sell. So that can be uh, indicative of that price per acre potentially dropping down some. Uh, it could be more people leaving the West Virginia area and moving to different parts of the country. I can't comment specifically on what's on what's driving these prices down as we've seen uh, for this data right now. And, and I'll also say too, with West Virginia, and this is one of the challenges we have with our reporting, we have to rely on the counties that provide this data. I've got the least amount of records in, in West Virginia than just about any state in the country. So it's hard to, to really pinpoint when you're only comparing a few hundred records of sale transactions each year versus other states where they have thousands to determine what could be the factor there. So this is a, it's another good point to bring up. This data is meant to do what you just did, give you information and cause you to ask questions. And then you need to find somebody 
who is an expert to be able to help get you the answers to those questions. You don't want to take this data just at, at face value because of all the different variables that go into it. So you want to find a West Virginia land professional to be able to say, if you're a landowner in West Virginia, do I need to be seriously considering selling now? Is this something that that is just a short trend or is this a longer trend? Do it, instead of selling, if prices are dropping, maybe now it's time to be buying. Those are questions that we can answer for people once you get down to more specific areas. Well, conversely, with the lowest price per acre out of those five states, uh, which one shines with, with the highest price per acre? Ohio and Pennsylvania are really the top two there. And for example, in 2018, Ohio's median price per acre was almost $3,600 an acre. 2019, it was 20, almost 2,900 an acre. And it's right at 2,900 an acre for 2020. Uh, Pennsylvania was right at 3,000 an acre for 2018, uh, 2,800 an acre for 2019. And uh, as of right now, Pennsylvania is at 3,400 an acre for 2020. Again, the one thing that's constant with all these states is the median acreage is, is in the 80s uh, size wise. And again, we're, we're taking 50 plus acre parcels and, and pulling our info from that. Yeah, I think that's a key thing to point out, too, is that at least I see this in, in the markets that I sell in, is that when you drop down, really, it seems like under about 100 acres or so. And we talked about this a lot with, with Kaylin Campbell when we were talking about dividing properties, is that the influence of the, of the residential market and also the, the recreational buyer that's not really so much concerned with price per acre. That's not really how they're looking at the property. They're looking at it as this is what I can do with the property and this is what I can afford. And at least in my market, I definitely see a lot higher price per acre when we get those acreages down under that hundred or so. Do you see that trend across the country? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Typically the smaller the, the size of the, of the property, you're going to start seeing those price per acres increase. You know, when we're thinking about Pennsylvania, Virginia, those states that are they're very close to New York, Washington, D.C., some of those major metropolitan areas, how much are land values in, in those states affected by uh, those major urban centers? They're tremendously, because that's where all the people are, especially with those states. You think about the millions of people that live in these large metropolitan cities that are in the Northeast. There's millions of them, and they definitely, because of the demand, that affects property values just purely because it doesn't matter what part of the country you're in. If you have a metropolitan area, there is a demand from people that live in that metropolitan area to buy property that allows them either a weekend escape, it allows them to be able to invest money that they want to, to diversify you know, out of the traditional investment investment tools such as the stock market, et cetera, and put it into something like land ownership, timberland ownership, farmland ownership. So yes, the, the more people you've got, the more impact they have. And it's scaled from the cities where there's millions of people down to the cities where there's hundreds of thousands of people, but you can still see an impact because of that. It's the parts of the country that uh, don't have any type of major uh, metropolitan area within two hours is where you see those property values stay the most constant in that they're not necessarily rising drastically or decreasing drastically. Uh, it's just because there's fewer people out there impacting them uh, outside of the, the large transactions, especially out West where you, where you have, you know, tens of thousands of acres that, that will change hands versus tens or hundreds of acres. Jason, if we're looking at this from a 50,000 foot view, and you know, we talk a lot on here about the importance of being close to a sawmill if you're buying a timberland property, mm -hmm. and there's a certain radius where it, it kind of makes sense, so to speak. Is there a radius when you're talking about these major metropolitan areas where if somebody's looking for an investment property and they're considering the resale ability uh, of that property, to a recreational buyer that you feel like is a good, is a sweet spot in terms of hours of drive time or miles as the crow flies. Do you find there's a sweet spot across the country or a trend there? 
Yeah, there certainly is. And it may vary depending on what part of the country that you're in. But if you're close to a city, most people, most buyers, when they come to you, they, they, I used to get this all the time. The first thing they'd say is I want something within 30 minutes of my house. And that's pretty constant. But typically that's a pretty small sample area. If somebody's only willing to go 30 minutes from their house, hmm. when it's all said and done, an hour and a half was the magic number. They, they'd think, well, I'll go out to an hour, but if they'd find the right property. They'd go a little bit further out. Once you get past an hour and a half, two hours, you're getting away from the ability to knock off work and go hunt on your property. Mm -hmm. That's turning into a place where you need to have a place to stay and you're going to spend the night and that sort of thing. So ultimately what the, the main factor for a lot of people is, is what their budget is, what's more important to them, the proximity to their main residence or the amount of land that they can buy. If proximity to their residence is not as important, then they're willing to go hours away from home because they can buy more land because it's not going to be as expensive on a price per acre basis. But if you're limiting yourself to within an hour, within 45 minutes, within 30 minutes, you're going to be paying a premium. So you just have to, as the buyer, you just have to decide what's the most important for you. And in most cases, they settle on something in between. And that's when, when you, why you see that hour and hour half radius. And Joe, like you see in our market, sometimes you've got the better or the larger deer are further away, but the more expensive land is closer. So you'll get smaller deer for a higher rate, but you get more convenience, but you get a higher return in terms of the size of your mature deer, your bucks, your antler size, everything, you know, a few hours away. And that's kind of a constant battle for people, especially with kids in play and school and sports schedules and things like that. You know, which one do I want? Do I want the one three hours away with the big deer or the one that's an hour away that we can go hunt during the week and come back in time for the ball game? Yeah. And, and I see that too, just with my own experience is, is that when you want to go out and run the tractor and you, you got a job, you want to knock out, or you want to put 45 minutes in on the tractor. You're not going to do that if that property's three hours away, but if it's, it's close, you can go do these kind of things. Like you're saying, Jason, knock off from work, get a hunt in, go out for a day on the weekend and get a job done. That kind of thing. I guess it just really just all boils down to your own preferences and there's a, a give and take there. Getting back to, to land values, Jason, we haven't talked yet about Virginia and Kentucky. So what's the trend in those two states? Are, are land prices going up or down? Yeah, so both states are highly desirable states. You think about Kentucky, there's a lot of people from the southeast. I, I know a number of guys, a number of guys in, our, in national land have got hunting leases in Kentucky uh, because Kentucky's known for, for growing some big bucks. And it's easier to get to Kentucky than it may be to get to Kansas. So Kentucky, uh, medium price per acre, 2018 was just over 2,000 an acre, almost 2,100 an acre. 2019, a little bit of a dip, 1,800 an acre, uh, 1,863 an acre to be exact. And then 2020, we're looking at 1,888 an acre. Uh, in Virginia, uh, 2,700 an acre in 2018, 2,700 an acre in 2019 and 2,700 an acre in 2020. I'm rounding those numbers. They weren't all exactly 2,700. Virginia is very constant. And, and overall, Kentucky Kentucky is as well. That's really interesting to me to see that the land values are somewhat, I would just say stable, you know, that those aren't huge fluctuations. It's interesting to me to see that because when we've talked about the timber market right now, it's very depressed. And so, you you would think that land values would be would be dropping you know if you were just thinking about it from a supply demand and and that kind of thing and you would think those land values would be dropping but the fact that they're holding steady to me I, you know I don't have a crystal ball but I would be looking at that as an opportunity for for timberland properties because when that market rebounds and it will you're going to see I do think then you're going to see that the value of that timberland go up. I wonder if, you know, we've talked before, all those states are pretty heavily influenced by timber. And again, we're, Jason, we're talking about all the properties here. It's not just timberland properties. It's, it's farmland, it's pastureland, it's timberland. Any of those states have uh, a major transitional land component, like we talked about with Florida, you know, a lot of that 
what was rural now becoming residential? Absolutely. West Virginia, probably not as much, but Virginia, absolutely. Think about the areas in Virginia. You know, one of the things that makes Virginia unique is that, you know, it's proximity to Washington, D.C., certain parts of the state anyway. So, yes, transitional land is something that is a play in those states. Maybe not as much as Florida, because we know this to be true. There's a lot of people leaving Ohio to come to Florida. But with all that being said, you've still got large amounts of people aggregated in these metropolitan areas that don't necessarily want to be in the city. And there is suburban demand. So it's absolutely there. There are always going to be more unique areas than others where it's more, it's, there's more demand in certain states than there are in other states. And, you know, the trend typically is that if you're residing in a state where during the winter you're going to get lots of snow and lots of freezing temperatures, you're probably not going to have the same type of transitional demand that you're going to have in states where you've got more temperate climates and more people are, are looking to retire to those areas or just are fed up overall with, uh, with the harshness of, of the winter. So those factors certainly come into play. Well, Jason, thanks for sharing that with us with regards to uh, land values in those states. Uh, I, I know there's a lot of new things happening with regards to the end of the year, and uh, we're going to be looking forward to talking to you again soon and, and getting some of the newest data that we've got available. You got an idea of what states we're going to be talking about next time? We've pretty much covered the whole country uh, this year so far, and really what we're going to be digging into uh, coming up next is I'd like to be able to talk more about what 2020 truly looked like, what kind of changes we saw happen, pluses, negatives, and what next year is going to look like. We've got, obviously, a transition coming in in the White House. We've got an ongoing pandemic that, uh, that there's still a lot of unknowns out there as well that, you know, again, fortunately for, for our business, things have been uh, there's been a lot of positives that, that have gone on from that, you know, people being able to, to recognize that there's a lot of life to be lived when you've got some space around you. So we're going to be able to dig into a little bit more data with that. So I'm, I'm very interested to see how, you know, overall things adjusted in 2020 and what 2020 potentially is going to look like moving forward. All indication is, is that, is that there's still a lot of people interested in, and land, and uh, we don't see that changing anytime soon. Well, it's, uh, it's definitely going to be interesting to watch. Well, Jason, if folks want to uh, look up a, a local agent in their area, get a better idea of what land values are at, at a more hyper-local level, how many states are we covering now? We're licensed to do business in 47 states now. By the end of next year, we should be in all 50 of them. We've got act offices active right now, and in 37 states. So we've got it covered. And if we don't happen to be, have physical presence in a state, we've got great relationships uh, in those states to be able to help people out. So all you have to do is go to nationalland.com, nationalland.com, and look up the area that you're interested in. And we've got, uh, we'll have a roster of professionals that can help you there. But I definitely highly recommend if you're doing your research, we want you to come to National Land to be able to get your information in this business. It's important once you kind of get it, get a basic idea that you engage someone to get the specific details of how and how that impacts you, whether you're a landowner trying to figure out what your property's worth or your buyer trying to figure out what it's going to cost to get what you want. You need to be able to have that, that personal interaction with these experts because there's a lot of misinformation that can, that you can come across that we definitely don't want you to make any kind of costly uh, mistakes there. So nationalland.com, we've got a, a number of great features that we're going to be rolling out in 2021 that's going to supplement and enhance what we've got uh, available right now. And I can tell you that you're going to be able to research property trends. You're going to be able to go and look in specific states and see what the 10-year, five-year, one-year trend is for property values as a whole. There's just a lot of fun stuff that's going to be coming uh, that's tied to, uh, to land base, which is our, our, uh, our research sales section of nationalland.com. In addition to 
the the uh, the listings that we've got. There's some fantastic properties for sale right now. Well, Jason, it's always a pleasure. We're looking forward to uh, keeping the conversation going on this and learning from all these new features. It's exciting, exciting stuff coming up. We'll talk to you again soon. All right, great. Thanks, guys. This week's What's My Land Worth segment was brought to you by Alabama Ag Credit. Buying real property isn't the same as buying in town. If you're in the market to purchase your own piece of paradise or need an operating line for your farm, give our friends at Alabama Ag Credit a call. As the local experts in rural real estate financing, they can help you with everything from homes and land to tractors and crops. Because sometimes natural resources need financial resources. And while some lenders don't get it, they do. Learn more by visiting alabamaagcredit.com. All right. Thanks to Alabama Ag Credit for being a, being a sponsor of the show. Guys, if you'd like us to email you this show each week, it's really easy to join our email list. All you've got to do is text the word hunting to 773-770-4377. Again, just text the word hunting to 773-770-4377 to join our email list and get the new show each week. All right. On today's show, we are interviewing the hunter chef, Michael Hunter, the chef owner of critically acclaimed Antler in Toronto, Ontario, and the author of the all new cookbook aptly named The Hunter Chef. Michael, welcome to Huntland, man. Uh, it, it's cold in Florida, so I imagine Toronto is just a tad bit colder. How you doing <laughs> up there? I'm good, man. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about uh, your background and, and what brought you to Antler and, and now the the cookbook the hunter chef <laughs> well i grew up on a horse farm just north of the city and you know being surrounded by wildlife and nature really had an impact on um you know my upbringing and really my my taste in food i started working in kitchens at uh, a young age of 13 i i wanted to make some pocket change and and uh, i just wound up working at this little diner and and really fell in love with food i i always loved uh, eating at home and I, I cooked at home a little bit because my mom would work late and tell me how to start dinner so that that's kind of how it started and then when I, I wound up in chef school and and that's when I went hunting for the first time for wild turkey and it was the flavor difference between wild turkey and farm turkey that that really was like the light bulb moment for me where I thought you know this this doesn't taste anything like farm turkey this is how turkey is supposed to taste and and uh you know really becoming a chef i was just passionate about using the best tasting ingredients and you know the rest is history after that well i'm impressed that you were able to to take a turkey uh you know your first time out clint clint's still having to <laughs> you know ask me uh if he can have some of my turkey you know he's still he's still learning he's fledgling turkey hunter but we're we're working on him Turkey hunting can be incredibly humbling. You know, I've had a lot of luck over the years. And uh, last year I was served humble pie on multiple occasions. So I, I, I get yeah, it. Yeah. <laughs> That's a quick lesson. If you have a successful hunt, you are not a turkey hunter. You're just lucky. Right. You're just lucky, man. It's, uh, you know, things that I would get away with in the past, I was getting busted with like repeatedly last year. So, yeah, I get it, man. Yeah, they're devil birds. They all need to be punished. But, you know, <laughs> but uh, yeah, man. So what's it like? I mean, you, your restaurant, Antler, I mean, is everything yeah. there wild game and fish? So it's farmed wild game. We have similar laws that you have in the States. So we can't serve, I can't sell wild game for a profit. So there's one province uh, you can, Newfoundland, actually you're allowed to. And it's it's something that we've inquired about with our with our government and municipal laws. And it's something that would, you know, would really be a dream of mine. It would be able to serve uh, something that I harvested myself actually in the restaurant. But for now it's all, uh, we buy from local game farms. Everything is within Ontario, except our bison comes from Alberta. Interesting. So, I mean, you were talking about the flavor profile difference between mm -hmm. wild turkey and, and farm turkey. Do you notice a flavor profile difference between farmed wild game and wild game? hundred percent. It is, it is like, especially duck. Duck's one of those things where a wild duck has such an intense flavor and farm duck is, it's great. You know, it generally has a little bit more fat on it, but the flavor, there's no comparison in, in my mind, but you know, for me, it's, it's still, it's important. It's, it's really special for me to, to serve game at the restaurant and to serve wild fish because it's just, it's something that I'm, I'm passionate about that, you know, it's, it's an alternative protein to chicken, beef and pork. 
and I find the smaller game farms, they're a little bit more smaller scale, family run. I like to get to know the farmers more, visit the farm and stuff like that. So it's something that I, I'm, I'm still passionate about, but I would, I would really love to be able to serve the real deal one day. Well, I mean, meat can be, meat of all kinds is under attack uh, in a lot of places. How well received have you been in a major metropolitan area like Toronto? You know, I was very surprised when we opened the restaurant. We uh, we actually did have a chicken dish on the menu in the beginning, sort of a, like a just-in-case, you know, sort of right. dish where, you know, if someone came on a date and they, they they didn't really realize that it was game meat and they could still order a chicken. And it, did, it didn't sell, you know, and it was a great dish. It was a half-roasted uh, half chicken, you know, crispy skin, everything else. Yeah, it just didn't sell. And we, it was, you know, a pleasant surprise for us. We'd be eating it for our staff meals and stuff like that. And then, you know, I think it was a few months later, we just said, okay, well, let's just take it off the menu because people were coming to try new things and to try game meats or this because they enjoyed it and they, you know, they couldn't really find it anywhere else. So that it was, a, you know, a great surprise for me. You know, the one thing that, you know, growing up working in restaurants, you know, a lot of times a, a restaurant I worked at, they'd have a wild game feature or like a venison or elk feature. But it wasn't really like a staple on the menu, and it certainly wasn't, you know, the whole menu wasn't game meat. So I think we're we're sort of the first of our kind anyway, at least in these days, you know, in the restaurant scene in Toronto, for sure. You know, with you being in Canada and us being down here in the South, signals to me that there's probably always some crossover confusion on what gamey means, because <laughs> I married a girl from the South Caribbean, and, you know, I went down there, and, and we go to this restaurant, and we're trying this fresh fish, and fresh to me and they say "Ooh, this tip this fish tastes so fresh and i was like that's great so i go to dig in they all start yelling at me no 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 fresh to them has that fishy taste that everybody hates if you, you know if you get a a, yeah. a bad selection of fish but to me coming from alabama that's a good thing when you tell me something tastes fresh that's what i want so, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, what is, when somebody says this tastes gamey, what does that mean to you? I mean, what to us is generally a negative connotation, but you know, what's your take on it? Yeah, I think that's a really good point. You know, different, uh, different understandings of the word for me, I, I like that gamey taste, but I think there is, you know, there is some confusion around what, what that is. For me, it's a different flavor and it's, you know, sometimes I, I, I like to think that venison has a bit of that lamb flavor to it and i kind of describe it as a barnyard funk sometimes like it just has this funkiness to it but as a chef i i enjoy that flavor and i I like to work with it but i think that a couple things that we can talk about are are all the things that would can fall under that that you know gamey taste you know concept whether it's you know the animal's diet uh and the way it was handled bacteria being introduced to it you know guts you know all that all that kind of stuff so there's all kinds of things that can uh play into that that off flavor that people can be describing. Yeah, I, I think I see that almost, I would say that's very consistent to me when I'm talking to people and they say something's gamey, they're usually saying it saying it with their kind of this, their tongue stuck out of their mouth and um, they're not yeah. very happy about what you just served them. In that situation, I think most people are talking about a bacteria tainted piece of meat you know whether it wasn't handled correctly maybe it was a gut shot animal or it's spoiled because it didn't get refrigerated quickly enough usually it's some type of bacteria but then there is that flavor like you're talking about where for me I've come to enjoy the flavor of say a white-tailed deer it has kind of that herby herby flavor you know because their diet is not just grain and you know I like that I've uh, a lot of people it takes some warming up to Mm-hmm. And then, you know, like you're talking about ducks. I mean, ducks are so much fun because depending on where you're shooting them, uh, what part of the country you're shooting them, they can taste completely differently depending on what their diet is. And they have kind of that minerally flavor to them. Like you said, kind of almost like a liver type flavor. I think there's a lot of confusion there when you're talking. So let's talk about getting people into eating wild game. For me, with my wife, for example, when we first started dating, she was she was not a hunter. She wasn't against hunting, but she wasn't definitely for hunting from a perspective of, she didn't care if you did it, but she didn't want to go do it. Now she's a, a amazing hunter. And it all started from a piece of deer meat that I cooked for her. Uh, in the South, we call it deer meat, not venison, yeah. but, uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, I cooked that for her. <laughs> yeah. And you know, she, she was just like, wow, this is really, really, really good. And, and it's that kind of stoked a fire to start providing for herself so 
do you try to embrace that flavor uh, when you're when you're cooking if you're starting someone out or do you do mm-hmm. things to try to remove that flavor and we're again we're not talking about the bacteria tainted yeah. flavor we're talking about you know wild flavor uh, what do you do so you know I think that one of the one of the ways that you know we could talk about it is like deer we mentioned we're talking about deer and their diet so if we go a little bit north of where I am you know, past the farmland, the deer, they're eating a lot of cedar. So that meat is going to have like a cedar taste a little bit to it. And then, you know, more in the the southern part of where I live, there's all kinds of cornfields and grain fields and stuff like that. And I I find that that's that deer eating cedar has a bit of that gamey flavor. So one of the things that, you know, if I want to work with that, I can, I can cook it over cedar logs, you know, smoke it with a little bit of cedar, something like that, really play with that a bit. But if it's if I find it's really strong and I want to I want to mask that I'm I'm going to use a lot of spices. You know we do um, call it a spice ash at the restaurant. It's and it's we use sweet spices, so we're using cinnamon, clove, juniper. I've even dried the green like cedar leaves and and made that into a spice. We'll spice it with the kind of a, the sweet spices, and and that's a kind of a good way to to mask it a little bit. You know I think it just depends on you know, your audience, like you were saying, if someone's sort of new to it, you might want to try and mask a little bit, but, but for me, I, I enjoy the taste. So, you know, some, I'll just use salt and pepper at home and fry up a backstrap in a, in a cast iron pan. And I'm, I'm pretty happy with that. So I think it just depends, you know, who your audience is. I think there's one other type of gamey taste uh, that I know I've experienced. It gets a lot of attention, but I don't think it's as common as what people think. And that's, that's that hormone filled male version yeah. uh, uh, mm-hmm. of whatever you've, you've taken. I mean, you think about a, mm-hmm. a rutting whitetail buck, you think about a big boar, feral hog, uh, you know, is that a real thing? Oh, hundred percent. I've uh, been lucky enough to go to West Point, Mississippi and, and do some hunting. And I think the first, the first feral hog that, that I killed was a small sow and it was absolutely delicious. And the following year, uh, we were whitetail hunting and my friend actually shot two boars on the run. And there's this one massive boar. It stank. The meat stank. It was like, like you're saying, just full of hormones and stuff like that. So it's very real. (laughs) And it uh, it has a big impact on, you know, on your meal. But in, in that case, you know, that is perfect for a brine. So we took the loins off and uh, some of the meat and we soaked it in uh, salt water with spices, garlic, onions. And I find that really helps get rid of that, that funk. You know, when you've got an animal that, you know, you know it when you shoot a, a wild boar that it smells like this, <laughs> you'll know it well <laughs> before you uh, get close to the animal. You know, you mentioned that brine. What, what about, is all that flavor, is it held in the fat or is it in the actual muscle fibers as well? Um, I'm, I, I would say, I think it's in the muscle, you know, I think the whole animal it's running through its veins at that point, you know, and it's, uh, at least that's my opinion. I think that, you know, sometimes the fat, the flavor of the fat mixed with the gamey, gamey, you know, you know, hormone funk, I think that creates its own distinct flavor. You know, the fat has its, has a different flavor than the meat. So I think that's, you, you can definitely taste the difference between the two, but I think the meat still has, has the funk. Well, you know, it's interesting you talk about dealing with that. Some people call that a gamey flavor, but dealing with that is is something I want to talk more about and how to get that gamey taste out if it's even possible. Before we get there, though, let's talk a little bit about kind of preparing for a hunt. So one of the biggest things I see is guys getting out in the field, they get it, they get an animal down. They don't have what they need to, to take care of of their wild game. So yeah. what do you, what do you like to take with you? If you're, if you're preparing for a hunt, you mentioned you're going down to Mississippi. What do you like to make sure you've got before you ever have a need to start processing wild game? You know, always have a knife, you know, cheesecloth or kind of cotton uh, game bags are uh, amazing. If you want to butcher it quick and you know, those you can hang into a tree and it keeps the flies off and all that stuff. So those are great. I typically don't wear gloves anymore, but sometimes, you know, people like to have uh you know, latex gloves or something like that with them. I like to keep the uh, the heart and liver and stuff like that. So I'll generally have a, a couple of plastic bags I can put the organs in because I don't want to waste that stuff. 
but uh, you know, rope, you know, sometimes those pulleys, the game brow, whatever it's called, those are, those are good to have if I'm not close to home or something and I want to hoist that uh, animal up uh, into a tree and, and, and butcher it. You know, I, I'm lucky where I'm hunting, you know, in Toronto, our deer season, it's, it's generally pretty cool outside. So we can, we can hang stuff, uh, you know, mid season to late season, you know, it's cold. So we can, uh, we can hang outside or in our garage in the barn, whatever it is. You know, we have that luxury of temperature is on our side most of the time, but you know, somewhere like Mississippi or, you know, where you guys in Florida, Texas, you know, it's warm. So, um, you know, I would imagine you guys need to be uh, pretty close to, uh, a refrigerated trailer or uh you know a big a big cooler uh and get that meat in there pretty quick michael i'm in alabama joe's in florida we're jealous of your your cool winters because our <laughs> last week it was 70 some odd degrees on the opener of our gun season I was literally having to fight wasp and mosquitoes in the shooting house you know if you're lucky and you you know you get your deer down it doesn't take but a few steps that's great but you know some of us it may be a shot right at dark. We can't find the deer. You know, we're trying to make that decision of, you know, do we look for it tonight or wait till daylight? You know, in terms of, of handling that game, I mean, what's your opinion on how long you've got before that meat's been out there too long to use? I th- You know, it really depends on, on the temperature. You know, if it's in the 70s, 80s, you know, I, th- I think it's a couple hours and it, it really starts to turn. It re- depends on the shot too. So if it's if it's a, you know, a gut shot or, or, you know, it's nicked some of the guts, you know, I think, you know, overnight might be too long, you know, at least, um, you know, for me, I think getting the guts out and, and, and cooling it down as quickly as possible is, you know, the most important step, but um, three to four hours would be ideal getting a little bit long there. But uh, I think after that, it's, it's really tough to say, you know, I think it's really dependent on the air temperature outside. And speaking of the organs, you mentioned those earlier. Uh, what's your favorite to use in cooking? I was really surprised by how tender the heart is. And, uh, you know, just slicing it horizontally, cooking it like a, a big tenderloin steak almost, you know, nice and rare. I was, I, you know, for a muscle that works so hard all day, every day, uh, I was really surprised at how tender that meat is. You know, Michael, you know, you're talking about air temperature and one of the problems is that you don't know necessarily if you can't immediately find the animal you're not sure how when that animal expired so you you may have made a poor shot and you know maybe the animal died within minutes or maybe it took them a Mm -hmm. few hours to die when you eventually find an animal if you're unsure about the condition of the meat Mm -hmm. do you have a rule of thumb or a, a you know a safety check to be able to tell is it always a sniff test or is there something else you can do to determine if if that meat's too far gone or if it's worth trying to salvage yeah for me it's all kind of just on the nose a real easy way to tell if it's in a vacuum bag already and you've you've harvested it and you're 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 not sure i find if the bag puffs up you know that meat is rotting or the bacteria in there is rotting and it's caused some sort of gas to come off or co2 i'm not exactly sure what's in the bag but the bag will be blown blown up like a balloon that's a good way to you know get a visual you know the blood in the bag if it's if it's fizzing or bubbling at all like uh you know like champagne almost that's you know another way you can kind of visually tell that it, that it's off but when it's when it's still on the ground if it's a gut shot there's going to be discoloration from the guts it's a bit of a mess inside so um, really, I think it's, I think it's just smell, you know, I've, I've actually never had that happen to me because, you know, because my hunting season, it is so cold. So I've actually never had to, uh, had to deal with that. And I've, I've never come across an animal that, that has spoiled. So I might not be the best, uh, the best judge for this one. Well, you know, the sniff test is always going to lead you in the right direction, I think, but yeah, it's tough, it's, especially guys hunting in warmer climates. Um, you know, some of the best hunting of the year can happen during these warmer temperatures and we're just not blessed with uh (laughs) with cold uh when when we want to have cold um i wish we were you know one of the things we are able to do when we do have cold temperatures is hang our deer hang our animals and uh, i've seen a lot of back and forth discussion on what hanging does to the meat and does it you know actually can does it do you feel that it helps like if you have the ability with the temperatures, uh, whether you maybe you've got a walk-in cooler available, or maybe the the ambient temperatures 
are, are favorable to do it. Do you find that hanging an animal helps? So I think, you know, there's, there's a whole bunch of different factors that come into play. Deer don't have a lot of fat on them. So I like hanging meat, whether it's uh, deer, you know, beef, we get bison at the restaurant, we dry age it ourselves. So I love hanging stuff and, and dry aging it. I think it really um, has an impact on flavor. You know, the enzymes start to break down and your meat actually becomes more tender from uh, aging, but you can also uh, wet age too. So if you want to butcher your animal, you can backpack it all and leave it in the fridge, you know, age it for a week, sometimes, you know, two weeks in those backpack bags. But so there, you know, some of the issues with, you know, say hanging a deer, for instance, is uh, the meat can dry out because it's not, uh, it doesn't have that same kind of fat that covers, you know, the whole animal that a hog or a, a, a cow does. Um, so it just, you know, depends on what, what you've harvested. You know, a lot of people will hang the deer with the skin on, you know, but then it's can be really difficult to then get the skin off. So I think there's pros and cons with, with whatever method that you want to do. But, uh, I, I like aging it, whether it's whether it's dry aging or, or wet aging it. It's something that I, I generally always do before I freeze it. In our area, we see a lot of people do the what I deem the, the ice bath, where you about 50% ice, 50% water, and then they'll rotate that it for a few days, maybe up to a week. You know, they're kind of trying to, to take that the general rule of thumb for us kind of out there in the field. It's just, you know, as that the water starts red, the clearer it gets, the better the, the meat is in terms of the gamey flavor. Is there any truth in that or, or good logic in that? Uh, I'm so I've never done that, but I would I would love to uh, to experiment and, and give it a shot. I definitely think you're gonna rinse out some of that flavor hundred percent. So if the gamey flavor is something you're worried about or that's you know it's a big buck right in the middle of the rut, that will definitely help. You know, whether it's uh you know, I, I would probably put a little put a little salt in there, make it a, a mild brine. I think that would really help. It definitely helps, you know, break it down and stuff like that too. So I, I think, you know, that would be kind of a neat experiment. That means I'm just going to have to try that with Tony Shasheries. Right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, Clint, I've tried that myself and uh, over the years and, you you know, we, we have some running jokes going about those because everybody's got this method, you know, oh, you know, you got to, got to leave it in there for 37 days on ice water and wait till the, you know, all this, <laughs> yeah. there's all this uh, stuff going around. And the thing I don't like about it is it really seems to degrade the, the, the outer uh, kind of outer portion of the meat. And you have to do a lot of trim and you lose a lot of meat. And like you're saying earlier, Michael, it really, for what I, my experience with that has been, you're getting rid of the beneficial gaminess of the, of the meat, you know, those flavors that we talk about coming to appreciate. I do think it, it gets rid of that flavor, which depending, like you say, depending on your audience may be what you were going for. Right. But I, I think for, for me, it, it, just someone who's eaten a ton of wild game, I've like say, and you, I've come to appreciate those flavors and I don't want to get rid of them. Mm -hmm. Kind of getting back to that, losing some of that meat. When you age wild game, you're going to lose some, you're going to lose some meat when you do that, right? You know, I don't, I don't trim it very much unless it's like hard as rock or something like that. But I don't generally age it for more than a couple weeks um, where it really dries out, you know, heavily. I think 37 days in ice water, I, you know, just the chef in me, even though I've never done it, I would say that's way too long. <laughs> I would say, you know, like a week or something, but um yeah, so I don't, you know, there you see these guys are that are aging. I, you know, this is sixty day age beef or whatever it is. Then yeah, you're going to end up with that really hard, leathery, you know, meat on the outside that you're going to have to trim off. So yeah, I, I'm with you. I, I don't want to lose a lot of my meat with trimming it off. I, you know, I don't think, you know, it's necessarily beneficial to do it for thirty or sixty days, whatever it is. So, um, you know, personally, I'll I'll hang it for a week. You know, five days wet aging I've done three weeks and I find that that starts to push it a little bit you know aging in the bag um so now I, I you know I do at least a week before I freeze it I'll, I'll age it in backpack bags I I do have the um ability to use a walk-in cooler so uh, I'm, I'm pretty lucky but when it, when I didn't have a cooler to age my meat in I would I would do it for about at least five to seven days hanging in a garage or in the barn or something like that yeah, I've experimented with several different types of aging. And I, I've found that for us, wet aging is the way to go because we're able to process the animal in the field in, in, in its entirety. You know, we can go ahead and debone it, do everything that we want to do out in the field, put it in vacuum seal bags, 
throw it in the freezer, and then we can take out, you know, several different cuts. Uh, you know, maybe, you know, Clint, we might take out a backstrap and a, uh, and a roast and several different cuts off of, a, say, a deer, put that in, say, a bottom drawer of, of the refrigerator and, and just come back to it in two, three, four weeks. And it's already in the aging process. And as we remove one piece, we just throw another in. Uh, and we throw it in completely frozen. And that, I think that gives a lot of times that when I've checked it, you know, four or five days later, it's still frozen. So I know it hasn't actually yeah. done that process and I'm getting, you know, three, four weeks of aging that way. And, it, and man, it makes a huge difference on the tenderness. Of, of yeah. It's really, it's really amazing. You know, once you start experimenting with it and you know, that first couple of times when I was getting into hunting and even fishing too, and some of you eat a fish in rigor and you try and, and roast it in the oven and it just curls up on itself. And it's just like, Oh, what's going on here? You know? So it just, even a, you know, 24 hours or 48 hours just to let that meat rest and, and, you know, start it's, it, you know, it begins the aging process almost right away. So, but yeah, once you start playing around and experimenting with it, it's, um, it's, it's really the only way that I'll, I'll do it now. All right. Well, now I got to ask you about fat because this is another thing that I think is just, you hear so many different conflicting anecdotal type evidence about fat. And personally, I've eaten deer fat that was uh, delicious. It tasted just like fat on a steak. It was, it was yep. awesome. I've also had deer fat that was vile, you know, I mean, it stick right. to the roof of your mouth and just, yeah. uh, you know, not, not good <laughs> stuff. So uh, when it comes to when it comes to fat and wild game, what are your opinions? Uh, I generally like the fat, so but I I do know what you're talking about with that stick to the roof of your mouth quality to it, and I think that's just the deer's genetics or makeup. Uh, but maybe maybe it has to do with diet too. You know, I'm not sure. Um, but yeah, I noticed that it's 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 deer fat especially is it's in the fridge. It gets really hard. So I'll make a you know, pasta sauce or, you know, whatever. And that fat layer on top, when I put it in the fridge, is just like a rock, you know, it's, it's so hard. And, but for me, you know, I'll just kind of scoop that off and then, uh, you know, reheat my sauce on the back straps. I'll generally, I like to leave a little bit of the fat. I like that. I like the flavor. I like, you know, in the, in the pan, you know, it kind of doesn't stick, you know, as much. And so, being a chef, I'm, I'm a bit of a glutton, you know, I like, uh, I like, you know, steaks with marbling and lots of fat on it. So yeah, I, I haven't, I haven't had any deer fat per se that is vile in, in flavor. I have had a bear though once that the, the fat was very strange. It didn't solidify in the fridge. It was just like grease. And, um, you know, we, we melted it down and I wanted to use it in pastries like lard. And usually when I, when I do that with bear fat and I put it in the fridge after rendering it, it, it firms up like, you know, butter. And this bear fat was, um, was just liquid, you know, it was like a vegetable oil almost. And it was very strange and it, it, it didn't have a very good tasting flavor to it. And I'm not really sure why that was. And I just, I just discarded it. So, yeah, it's so interesting all the different ways you can go with it. One of the, one of the things I'm personally sensitive to is, is lymph nodes. You know, it seems like, okay. you know, when you, when you're, when you're cleaning an animal and you, uh, a lot of times the fat and the lymph nodes and the veins run together and people I think don't necessarily know what those lymph nodes are. A lot of times I, what I'm talking about, is like that, you know, you cut into it and it looks like this little grayish purplish type, pocket and i see that ending up in a lot of of grind piles personally i make sure i remove every single one of them that i can i think that they have a they gross very strong <laughs> flavor yeah <laughs> is that i was going to ask you is that something you're you're very uh, uh picky about yeah i always discard that stuff they can be like you said just vile in flavor i think that you know that's where the hormones are and stuff like that so those yeah um you know i i'm i try and be really careful not to cut those and have some of those juices, whatever's in there, run off and, and touch any of the other meat. So, you know, I find that those, it can, like you said, just the bile flavor. And sometimes, you know, they, they, uh, there's a gland in the buck's leg too, that I try not to, uh, yeah. not to, uh, not to touch too much. So I would shy away from putting those in a grind pile. I think if you've, you know, if you ever had a piece of really any kind of wild game that tasted what I call rank, you know, like you were talking mm -hmm. about earlier with, uh, with that rutting buck or that, that smell of that wild hog, when you get that rank flavor and it's just one bite and then it's, it's not in the, I think that that's what you've gotten is you've gotten a, 
uh, piece of that lymph node, or maybe a, it's just, yeah, gotta, gotta learn. If you don't know where the lymph nodes are, figure it, learn, uh, because that's a good thing to make sure you get out of your, get out of your wild yes. game. <laughs> so that really, that brings us to getting gamey taste out of wild game, whether that's deer or squirrels or, you know, wild boars or rabbits, ducks. I mean, it can be in all of them. So for those, we talked about it a little bit before for, for the palates that don't appreciate it, hopefully yet. Tell me some of the ways that you'd mask that gamey taste. And we're talking the herbiness, the, the minerally type flavors, not, not off meat. Yeah. Um, so I think the first one would be a brine. That's probably the easiest. And it can be just as simple as salt water. You know, the general rule of thumb is 3% salt to water. So, you know, we use uh, metric up here. So it's uh, a liter, I think what, a gallon is four liters of water or something like that. Um, so for every liter, it would be a thousand grams. So it'd be 4,000 grams. Uh, I think I do about 30 grams of salt to a thousand grams of, of water. And that can be it. And then you can, you can soak it, you know, overnight, 24 hours is really all you need for a smaller piece of meat. Um, or you can get fancy with a brine where you, you know, bring the water to a boil, you add the salt, you can add onions, garlic, thyme, rosemary, bunch of herbs to it, spices, and then uh, cool it down or add ice to it to cool it down and then brine your meat in that. And that adds a whole bunch of flavors to the meat too, which is kind of neat. And that, that's, you know, it takes a bit more work and a little fancier. You know, if you don't want to brine it or don't have the room to, you know, heavily spicing it or doing like a blackening rub is a great way to sort of mask some of that flavor, you know, super hot cast iron pan and, and really get the outside, get a nice blackened char on it is, is a great way to, uh, to mask the flavors too. What about sauces? Uh, do you find sauces uh, have a, a place in, in masking that flavor? Um, I would generally, I generally use sauces to, yeah, you can, you can definitely use some a sauce to mask the flavor. I like to, uh, you know, enhance the flavor of, of gaby meat with sauces and, and wild game, you know, for me is really great with, uh, with fruit and kind of tart flavors, whether it's like currants or, uh, wild blueberries, raspberries, stuff like that, you know, adding a little bit of sugar, you can add a little bit of vinegar to those sauces and reduce them down to like a thick compote or you know almost like a jam consistency but uh you know I, I find a little bit of vinegar in there helps kind of cut through some of the gamey flavor but also pairs really well with with wild meat all right so that's really talking masking that flavor or complementing that flavor now let's talk about meat that you think may be off is is there anything you can do i mean is it a lost cause <laughs> I, you know what? I think it's a lost cause. I've, I've tried, we, we had a, a bison uh, roast once uh, go off at the restaurant and, you know, I, I tried everything, just more of just like a fun kind of project at that point, but it was just, uh, it was not salvageable. We dry aged it too long and it was just an experiment and uh, you know, we had to discard the whole thing. So I think, you know, once, once it's off, it's off, you know, there's no coming back. And, um, you know, I don't think it's even worth it at that point if I don't think you want to get sick and stuff like that. So, you know, I think if you want to try a little piece of it and see if it's, if it's off, but yeah, once it's gone, it's gone. Michael, a go-to recipe for almost all wild game in our region is the stuff it in cream cheese, maybe some jalapenos and wrap it in bacon, throw it on the grill. And that is a time tested and true recipe that is delicious. <laughs> But you could, you could treat my boot the same way, and it's still going to taste pretty good, stuffed in cream cheese and wrapped in bacon. So if I'm wanting to step away, you know, get out of my comfort zone on processing and cooking wild game, I mean, you know, where do you recommend I start? Is there a cut or a seasoning or, or you know, what are your thoughts? Um, I think the, the, you know, the backstrap is a great place to start. You know, I think cooking it properly is, is definitely, you know, high up on that list. Uh, I find, you know, because the meat is so lean, it doesn't have a lot of fat in it. If you overcook a backstrap, you really get a little that irony flavor in there, which can throw people off. So, um, you know, you don't have to cook, cook the heck out of wild game. You can still eat it medium rare like a steak. So the right cut, cooking it properly and definitely spices. You know, the spice ass recipe in my book is a great one for deer. You know, if you are worried about that flavor, then, you know, maybe try some grind, um, putting in a tomato sauce. I find, you know, when my kids were, were little and I would make pasta sauce with ground deer, 
you know, they, they didn't know it wasn't beef. It just, you know, it tastes like beef. Once you cook something and stew it out or braise it in tomato sauce, um, you know, you, you'll lose all that flavor. So that, that would be a great place to start. You know, there's a bolognese recipe for deer, deer meat in the book as well. So again, that would be another great place to start. Well, Michael, it's, uh, it's been a pleasure, man. I, I think we covered a lot of ground with regards to uh, just clearing up some misconceptions about, about gaminess and you've helped a lot for folks that are looking to either deal with gaminess, compliment gaminess, or, and also know the difference between true gaminess and, and, and meat that is, is too far gone. I know that the cookbook is, is going to be really interesting. I can't wait to get a look at it and, and get some new ideas for, for cooking. If folks want to pick one up or take a look at it, what's the best way to do that? Are they, are you selling them online? Are they in bookstores? Um, how do they pick one up? Yeah, they're, they're absolutely everywhere where books are sold, you know, Amazon, Indigo chapters, um, you know, my website, uh, thehunterchef.com. you know, there's links there to all, all the retailers that have them as well. And then, um, you know, very soon I'm going to start shipping myself or at the restaurant, antlerkitchenbar.com. Um, we have a link there where we can, uh, we can add shipping and uh, mail them out to you. Awesome. Well, the next time I'm in Toronto, I'm definitely going to come by and get a bite, but it's, I'm going to make sure I get up there in the summertime. <laughs> Thank you. I would love that. I would <laughs> well, love that. We, uh, we wish you the best with the rest of 2020, man. I appreciate you joining us today. Thanks so much for having me guys. Clint, I know you had a successful opening weekend and, uh, we're able to take what a, a doe and a really nice whitetail. <laughs> I imagine you got several, uh, probably got over a hundred pounds of, of meat you got to deal with now. Yep. Without a doubt. That's uh, that's cool, man. Uh, Stephanie had some success this past weekend herself, and uh, took down a took down a doe, took down a a nice hundred pound sow. You know that perfect pig. So that that's awesome. What are you gonna do with your uh, the, your deer this year? What do you what do you got planned? Well, now I've got plans to pick up a copy of that book and figure out what in the world spice ash is. Yeah, because <laughs> uh, I'm gonna try that. That sounds delicious. I love a dry rub, but um, so uh, you know I got. Some sausage. Uh, we got some breakfast sausage, smoked sausage, uh, maple sausage. First time I've ever had that opportunity, so I had to try that. Uh, but I've got a lot of, I've got all the loins at the back strap, uh, vacuum sealed, waiting on me to figure out what to do there. We've got some stew meat cut up. We've got some, um, you know, just different cuts that I try to keep in, in larger pieces through here off the hams just to have for, for hash or anything else we can kind of dream up. So I'm looking forward to, to learning more. Yeah, man. You got to take some of that stuff, stick it in the fridge. I'm telling you, stick it in the fridge and forget about it for about three weeks. Make sure it's vacuum sealed really good and you get a good seal on it and uh, come back to it in about three or four weeks. And just don't tell your wife that. Oh man. Uh, you know, once you, once you feed it to someone and they taste the dip, I'm telling you, it's completely different. Uh, the flavor is awesome. The tenderness is, is out of this world. It makes a huge, huge, huge difference, especially on like a big buck, like you shot, you know, he may be an older deer, and luckily you got him before the rut. So he's probably just fat and, and happy, but, uh, you know, you're going to need to do some things to, to tenderize him and short of running it through a cuber. That that's the, that's the best thing you can do, man. Definitely give that a shot. Yeah. It's fun. It's, it's a lot of fun. And, and the, the cool thing about it is, is when you, you know, you and I talk a lot about getting kids into hunting, getting, getting spouses into hunting, getting other people into hunting, when that's, that's really the gateway drug in a lot, in a lot of, a lot of cases is a really good piece of wild game can open people's eyes to the opportunities that are out there on a piece of land. You know, now, so now I got Stephanie out there. She's helping me look for new pieces of land to buy. That's, that's what you gotta, uh, that's what you gotta cultivate. Yeah, Joe, you need all the eyes you can get looking for land right now. The demand's really high and inventory's really low. I mean, we're going to the end of the years as busy as I've been all year. I've got roughly 4,000 acres and about $10 million worth of offers on the table today, uh, hoping to get some of these locked in. So things still looking busy your way? Yes, busy as it can be. You know, there's always, it just seems like there's a buyer around every corner, you know, and, and I, I, that's awesome. And I appreciate that. But, you know, you know, you, you and I both know that, that that's not going to last forever. So uh, it's definitely definitely the time is now if you're considering selling yep without a doubt well folks that's going to wrap it up this week as always please be sure to subscribe rate and review wherever you listen to podcasts hope you guys stay safe out there we'll talk to you next week
This week's shows were brought to you by Joe Baya and Clint Flowers, members of the top producing team at National Land Realty, the fastest growing and most innovative land brokerage in the nation. With hunting season right around the corner and interest rates at historic lows, now is a great time to buy or sell land. If you want to learn more, shoot us an email at pros at landhunting.com or call us at 855-NLR-LAND. And also brought to you by the Alabama Ag Credit, buying real property isn't the same as buying in town. If you're in the market to purchase your own piece of paradise or need an operating line for your farm, give our friends at Alabama Ag Credit a call. As the local experts in rural real estate financing, they can help you with everything from homes and land to tractors and crops. Because sometimes natural resources need financial resources. And while some lenders don't get it, they do. Learn more by visiting alabamaagcredit.com. And also brought to you by Wildlife Management Solutions. The experts at Wildlife Management Solutions can guide you on selecting the best forage for your soils and goals. So give them a call at 877-400-8089 or check out their website with more information and a full dealer list at productsforwildlifemanagement.com.